The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Hello, everyone. Michael Houghton, your host here, coming to you from what could be the top of the lower 48. I am on Logan Pass, the top of Logan Pass in Glacier National Park. About, oh, this is about 6,600 feet. I climbed up here this morning from uh, Agpar, which is essentially the lower part of McDonald Lake. It's about a 30-mile climb up here to the top of Logan Pass. This is one of the climbs to do in the United States. I mean, it's right up there with certainly anything I've done in the U.S. It matches some of the alpine climbs that I have seen. Von Tu as well. Uh, certainly uh, Alpe d'Huez or something like the Quad Affair. It's right up with there. A bona fide HC climb. It takes. It took me about two hours on the button to go 30 miles from the lower part of Lake McDonald, McDonald that is, up here to Logan Pass. You can, as you can tell, this is a very busy spot up here at the top of Logan. The road itself is busy too, uh, even uh, on a weekday. This is a Thursday I came up here. We're a couple days after the 4th of July, so still a plenty of visitors in the area, but uh, the, the two hour ride, at least a two hour ride for me, a lot of people take about three to get up here. Um, the road is busy, but it's a very, very good road, well-maintained when it's open. Um, and once you get up here, um, spectacular beauty. It is too bad that this is a podcast and not a, some type of TV cast because uh, the glaciers are up here, the rock formations, the amazing views. We had rain yesterday, so I rode up. Uh, they, they call it the, the road to the sun. I had the road to the fog. There was lots of fog this morning, but it was still uh, absolute beauty the whole way up, uh, the, the entire 30-mile climb. This is a doable climb uh, for people, too. I, I would say that uh, if you're in reasonably good shape, you've done some riding, the grade is steady. Um, I would call it uh, 5% to 7% for the most part. Um, it certainly a, a compact is called for the right gearing and that's what I had but I never felt under stress the whole climb um, and and I'll let you have this absolutely stunning distraction the whole way up so we're going to talk a lot about uh, you know riding in Glacier National Park and and the Logan Pass climb as well on the pace line today but I wanted to at least start the show this way from from the top of the lower 48 the Continental Divide Logan Pass, a great climb. Do it if you can. Uh, an absolutely epic one. Patrick told me, Patrick, you were right. Do this ride. Do this ride. Do this ride. And now I get to write about this ride, I suppose, for Red Kite Prayer. So we're going to have more show for you coming up soon. Um, Fatty, Patrick, good to be back with you guys. And hello, everyone, from Logan Pass, the Continental Divide. <music> Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, doing it national park style because uh, this podcast loves it. Some open spaces. Welcome to our little campfire. Grab a s'more because we got some stories for you on this edition of the Pace Line. Uh, I'm going to have more on my road to the sun riding and riding in general in and around one of the great places in the U.S., Glacier National Park. Great vacation place. Uh, but first, let's acknowledge my two understudies who kept the show alive while I was off the grid. Fatty of FatCyclist.com. Fatty, I believe you were hosting show 24. That's right, Michael. I was the host of the Pace Line, <laughs> the podcast on six wheels. Uh, Count them, six. I told you more alliteration. If you're going to be a radio dude, you have to alliterate everything. Everything has to start with the same letter. So you need to, you need to just work on that one thing. Otherwise, the voice... The voice. Sounds marvelous, Michael. Okay. <laughs> right. Sorry, Rich Little. Sorry about the impersonations. Uh, happy Welcome summer back, vacation Michael. to a Red Kite Purse. Patrick Brady. How are you, Patrick? Uh, uh, I'm just fine. I, I probably wasn't a very good understudy, though. I didn't Bye. study. Nah, went great, actually. Good show, both of you. Um, 
Happy to be back here too. Michael Houghton. Uh, fresh I'm, I'm grateful from, to have you back. Uh, Me too. Uh, fresh from Glacier National Park and uh, quite a trip. Uh, uh, in fact, an odyssey, an episode, a learning lesson. Just uh, not an epic, right? I'm going to get into all that in, in a bit about uh, uh, riding in Glacier, traveling with your bike, trying to get your bike to meet up with you, what to do if it doesn't. It's all coming up a little later in the show. Uh, and I know you guys also talked about the tour last week. We're going to get into that a little bit, too, uh, coming up. But first, we want to catch up with the uh, escapades of Fatty, as he is fresh off one of the top off-road events in the country. And good thing for him, he doesn't have to, to leave his home state to participate. It is the Crusher in the Tusher. Fatty, you and I exchanged uh, text messages after. I know you were not completely satisfied with your result. Nonetheless, you are part of a podcast. <laughs> where bearing one's soul is part of the job description. So, uh, your Crusher race report, Fatty, please. Well, I'm going to leave some, keep some of my powder dry on this one because I have not even begun to write about this one yet. Um, I'm still writing about the Rockwell Relay. <laughs> that said, uh, it's amazing how more and more pros are coming. Todd Wells was racing this. And furthermore, Todd Wells lost to a local boy, uh, Robert Squire. So congrats to Robert Squire and Michael Burley, who took second. Um, incredible uh, sprint for second and third place between those two with a difference of, I think, 11 hundredths of a second between them. So. Wow. Just, you know, just as tight as can be. Um, as for myself, honestly, I was no great shakes. Um, I thought I might be a little bit faster by trying out a cross bike. It turns out that uh, in order to get faster with a cross bike, maybe you need to train on a cross bike. Um, and, yeah, I just didn't. Uh, and also probably being 10 pounds heavier than I ought to be for a race that in 70 miles has around 10,000 feet of climbing. Maybe that wasn't such a good strategy either, but the real story for me uh, was the amazing results the women in my life had. Uh, specifically, the Hammer raced in the men's single speed category and podiumed, taking third place in the field. That's the she, open single speed category. That's the open single speed awesome. category. She was the only woman who raced in the open single speed category and took third. My niece, who um, has always been quite a bit, well, I won't say a lot slower than me, but a reasonable amount slower than I am. She uh, caught up to me about 40 miles into the race. We rode for a few minutes. She dropped me. I managed to reel her back in. And with about eight miles left in the race, she took off like I was completely standing still. I had no ability to react. She blew by me and put three minutes into me in the final seven miles of the race. It was, I, I am caught between being confounded at my own inability to dig in and find something there and being incredibly proud of my niece for really just putting on a clinic. She won her age category. I think it was the 35 and younger age group. And how old is she? She is, I believe, 26 years old. Wow. And my daughter, uh, Melissa, we call her the monster. It's her first year of mountain biking. Um, up until now, she hasn't even had a mountain bike. Um, she's the one who won True Grit. She won the six hours in Frog Hollow. Uh, this race really taught her something about endurance racing. And uh, we're proud of her that she finished. Mm -hmm. um, this was a, uh, a hard day for her. And we did not get her a special bike. So she was riding her Scalpel 2, um, which is a, a really great uh, cross-country racer. But this is a road dirt ride, and you don't need full suspension for it. But that's all she has. And um, she she did it She in about seven and a half hours. That's a good solid finish and uh, a good indicator that she is going to be successful in the Leadville 100, which is coming up in just a month now. Mm -hmm. What were the conditions like? The conditions were, um, I would say, ideal. Um, the The roads were good. There had been some fresh gravel on the second half of the course, 
that made it so that it was in generally regarded as a somewhat slower course than uh, last year. Uh, I for sure don't uh, don't consider that to be the reason I was much slower. I mean, maybe give it five minutes out of my out of my being half an hour slower than I was last year. Um, but it was a hot day. Uh, there was a nice wind, meaning that it wasn't something that apart from uh, the descent down into Circleville uh, really uh, did much damage to you. And for me, the, the wind helped with the heat quite a bit. So hot day, a little bit of a windy day, but honestly, just fantastic road and weather conditions. Um, I, you know, I, and the volunteers were top notch. Uh, Burke Swindlehurst, uh, he loves his race and it shows in every facet of the, every facet of the, of the whole event. Mm -hmm. Your assessment of the course speed is just about right. Cause Squire's time was about four minutes slower than his time last year. He mm -hmm. won both years, despite being a little slower uh, this year. He's four minutes off. He still beat Michael Burley, as he said, by nine minutes. Our colleague Neil Shirley came in eighth. And a guy I've ridden with a little around these parts, Ryan Steers, was uh, 12th in the Open Pro category, besting his notable teammate Dave Zabriskie yeah. by four minutes. So, yeah, a solid, solid field there. And, and Burke continues to attract, you know, Top quality, fast guys who want to make their mark there. He really does. And uh, people come out, they love it, and they tell their friends. That's uh, what's really obvious here is that this is a race that from now on, I think, is going to sell out quicker and quicker mm -hmm. every single year. On the ladies' side, Melinda McCutcheon was first. Four hours, 53 minutes, about three minutes ahead of Robin Farina, who amongst a whole host of things is the women's cycling association president so the women's field fast and competitive as well and of course the hammer geez was she on a, a single speed cross or mountain bike single speed mountain bike she uh uh was riding uh a 3220 uh for all of those uh, uh women who are interested in trying to best her next year uh good luck <laughs> but now, you, now you know her gearing it's no secret and that is what she is planning to race as she challenges her own single speed record at leadville in a month so was her ride largely solo or did she have somebody to pair up with um she that's the thing when you're riding single speed you're never riding with anyone for long um if everyone else is riding gears and there it was a pretty small single speed field so uh, on the downhill pavement sections, for example, she's going to obviously spin out almost instantly and uh, you know, getting a draft just isn't going to be enough. And, you know, people would pull away from her. So she would grab onto groups as they flew by and catch a moment. But more or less, it means that single speed means that you are time trialing this. Mm -hmm. You're riding it alone. And again, her time was? Her time was, I believe, six oh nine or so. Here, I'm an act. Okay, I'm looking at it. Yes, six oh nine forty six. Wow, awesome stuff. Yeah, oh, she really, really proud of her. Yeah. Okay, Just, I got to ask some questions. Like, um, how many men were in the single speed category? Six men finished. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, so there were even more starters. I believe there was uh, one DNA. Wow. Okay. And I'm guessing, well, was there even a women's single speed division? No, they always make the, uh, there's never been a single speed, uh, women's division at the crusher. Uh, okay. it's rare that more than one woman, um, ever tries it on a single speed. Okay. Um, uh, and what does this do in terms of bathroom usage? Is this something that the state of Utah is going to have an issue with? Like, her, <laughs> you know, uh, what with her monster performance and all, um, are they going to legislate on this? Uh, you know, uh, anything could happen. It is Utah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is a pretty great state. All right, I have a license plate that says so. So, Fatty, a lot of, uh, um, there's been a lot of Crusher Leadville comparisons made. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, I hear that the crusher is harder, harder than the big L. What it's say hard, you? I would say it's harder per mile because um, there's approximately the same amount of climbing uh, as Leadville, just without the 30 miles of flat. 
Um, so, I mean, that there, there is no, there's no recovery place in, uh, in this. And I would say the descending is by and large easier than Leadville's. There is no technical descent, just uh, one five mile washboardy descent that mm-hmm. can really do you damage if you let your bike get out of, uh, get out of hand. Mm-hmm. And it seems like every year someone will go down and get some road rash, uh, coming down the cold to crush as it is called. Um, that said, um, you know, mile per mile, it is, I would say more difficult. However, it never gets as high as Leadville. You know, the highest point of the crusher is about at the, just slightly higher than the lowest point of Leadville. And that extra 2,500 feet of altitude really makes a difference. As you know, you get something special happens to me every year when I get to around 11,000 feet and I just, I, I feel like someone has cut my voltage in half mm-hmm. and, you know, I just, the power just falls away from me and, you know, different people have that experience at different altitudes, but it seems like everyone has that experience before they get to the summit of Columbine. Yep. That said, um, I think that the crusher and the tusher, if you are working on Leadville, uh, is probably a better, um, indicator of how you're going to do than just about anything else. My wife noted a couple of years ago, and I've been startled at how true it seems to be, is if you want to know what your Leadville result is going to be, take your crusher result and add three hours. Oh, oh baby. Hmm. Then, so I finished in around, I think, 549. So I'm looking at, you know, an, an 850 Leadville, which will get me one more big belt buckle, and I sh- I should be proud of that. But that means I'm about I'm currently on target for being about forty no thirty minutes slower at Leadville than I was last year. Right. So, and you know, and you know, I, you know, I can be hang dog about that, or I can try to lose five pounds between now and Leadville, which is I think the my course of action I'm planning to take. So the hammer at Leadville is is targeting uh, the women's single speed record. Yes. Well, she she is the current holder of the women's single speed records, so she is hoping to make that a little bit harder for anyone to ever beat. So she is she's challenging her own record. Right. And so that she did 609 at Crusher. Doing mm-hmm. that math, she's headed for a 9109. Nine. Yeah. yeah. Which was the time she took uh she did on her geared bike last year. Her her best in Leadville on a single speed I think is about 950. So if she is able to do a nine ten or you know say nine twenty, you know that's half an hour faster wow. than she than her uh, previous record, and that is going to be something that is uh, I won't say it's unbeatable. You know certainly there's I mean she's never been a pro. She's an age grouper who just happens to be incredibly strong and tenacious and uh, focused racer. She uh, so you know her record inevitably will fall, but I. Unless there is uh, some single speeder I'm not aware of out there, she is going to definitely be someone to watch. Hmm. Cool. This is where we use the term prohibitive. <laughs> she is the prohibitive favorite. <sighs> Certainly in my eyes, she is. Well, we look forward to catching up with her in, uh, in Leadville and uh, seeing what kind of time we can lay down. But uh, all signs point to... Point to something good happening there for the hammer. And Fatty, I think you're going to come around. I think you're going to surprise everyone, including yourself. I'm going to do my level best. All right, then. Coming up, uh, that little bike race around France and a big climb in western Montana. That's next on the Pace Line. And get this. They call this the crush-up in the tundra, baby! Pace Line, the podcast, on to wheels. Fatty of FatCyclist.com, Patrick Brady, RedKitePrayer.com, Michael Houghton here. 
back from vacation, back from Glacier. We're going to talk about Glacier, riding around Glacier in uh, just a few minutes. Uh, but I was listening to the last show, guys, which you uh, dutifully handled in my absence, and I sense a, a little lack of inspiration from both of you, Fatty and Patrick, from what is supposed to be the most important bike race on the calendar, the Tour de France. Three things did kind of stand out for me headed into that first rest day. Contador's withdrawal, the deflating 1K banner, I think that was stage six, and uh, Froome's fan punch and wicked descent during stage eight. Froomey was hit with a $200 fine for taking a swipe at a fan who was running alongside his group as they climbed the cold at Paris Sword. The, the fan had a, a flag or a banner that clearly could have snagged his bars or could have got caught in a wheel. But guys, was Froome in the right for taking immediate action on the road by taking a swipe at that fan? Fatty. Oh, God. Or, or Patrick. <laughs> well, I know. You're both uh, itching, aren't you? <laughs> uh, oh, God, yes, in my opinion. I mean, the, the UCI and ASO are not doing enough to protect the riders. And... You know, it's just one of those things. One of these days, something's going to go very terribly wrong. I'm reminded of uh, Lance Armstrong snagging uh, of the the rope from uh, a fan's bag uh, going up. Uh, what was it, La Plana? I, I forget which climb um, in the Pyrenees. You know, what's this? Thirteen years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, snagged the bag, went down, uh, took a Bon Mayo with him got back up, realized a little while later that he'd actually broken his frame in the crash. You know, the UCI has done nothing in more than a decade. Um, and, you know, this is not the first time that a rider has taken a swing at, uh, at a, a fan. I mean, back in 1998, I ran an image of Pedro Delgado grabbing a, a kerchief around a guy's uh, neck and twisting it and pushing the guy away as he ran too close to him uh, on a climb in the Vuelta. Uh, so, I, you know, I kind of love that he did that. But the big thing is, you know, I think it's just it's completely wrong for them to to find him. And they need to be doing something to to bring in line uh, all these crazy fans. It's just bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. The only thing with Froomey is he's not a universally loved guy. So... He probably has a very short rope with some fans around the world when it comes to this uh, this issue. The, the the man I think in question had a Colombian flag, clearly a Quintana fan, so I'm sure it didn't play well in Colombia. Um, but yeah, sometimes a writer does have to defend themselves when you've got people that close threatening your title, uh, your ability to to move up the road. You got to push people aside and get a little aggressive. Shortly after, of course, Froome went on the attack. Uh, but not against fans or on a climb. It was on a descent. Huh? Oh, I love Froome that. bombing a downhill? <laughs> yeah, thank God. Uh, uh, that's what the whole leading group must have thought, too, especially Naro Quintana, who was grabbing a bottle as Froome was taking off. Froome was, won the stage, gained 20 seconds, but will it be worth it? A lot of effort doled out during his top two ride down the Pyrrhosword. Time to play team director. Does he get a pat on the back or... A what the hell were you doing, Fatty? I would suggest it doesn't matter whether in the end result it was worth it. What Froome did was completely uh, upend at least my perception of who he is. And this was an incredibly ballsy, passionate, awesome attack in a place that I would never have expected anyone to do, much less Froome. And yet he did it and he executed it brilliantly and he's no longer a guy who just spends his time staring at stems. He is a guy who, you know, puts his chest on his stem and goes harder and faster in places that no one else is willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Amen. But, yeah. Was it spontaneous, though, or a calculated sky move? You know? Who cares? I mean, it, it could have been either. It could have been either one. If, if it was calculated, bravo to sky. If it was not calculated, bravo to Froome. Right. Uh, on uh, one of Froome's secrets was a 54 tooth chain ring for that descent, but uh, this actually should come as no surprise. Sky mounted the same ring on Garen Thomas's bike during the final stage of Perry Nice. Thomas had lost the yellow jersey on the road that day, but regained it with a blistering descent into Nice. And Team Sky may be calculating and even boring, but they uh, do their homework and they put their knowledge to use. 
So Froome gains a little time on the descent. It looked weird. <laughs> a man of that stature um, on his top tube, pedaling away, uh, but something he clearly worked on and they had thought out. And it paid off in the form of 20 seconds. We'll see you know, as the tour rolls on, whether it's a, a deciding factor or one that hurts them in the end. Uh, that banner that uh, came down in front of Adam Yates, robbing him of stage seven glory, was caused when a fan got his belt caught in a cord and unplugged the blower that was keeping the 1K arch inflated. The next stage, of course, the ASO had barriers set up around the blowers near the finish to keep fans away. But uh, Patrick, hard for Adam to get back his glory, right? I mean, it's oh, it a mess. Yeah, well, I mean, this is more the same. You know, it's fans too close to everything, you know, and them not doing enough to kind of protect what they need to. I mean, he could have gotten pretty badly hurt in that. Um, ugh. You know, I just, I don't want to see, you know, six feet uh, between the fans and the riders, but, you know, personal space, you know, that, yeah. you know something needs to be done to, to keep this, um, you know, a little more separation just so that the riders know uh, that they're going to be safe. Um, this, this is an I'm ongoing okay theme, Patrick. This is an ongoing yeah. theme we've talked about on the pace line about, you know, the Peloton giving it, it a, a safe zone fan interference and then we got the motos too that we've talked about so the uci the governing bodies need to get in here and take a, a real good examination of you know how close people are getting whether that be the media or fans and whether or not it is it is disturbing race it's the it's the great part of this race and all races especially in europe is is proximity to the athletes um it's one of the lovely parts of the sport but yeah there needs to be a buffer zone. We need a little space, guys, to operate here. We're trying to race bicycles. Uh, Contador is out, uh, making this what feels like a two-man race. That is, if Quintana gets out of his saddle and shows uh, Froome something. Uh, otherwise, Skies is going to methodically take apart this tour and bore us all in the process. Looks like Contador will be back, uh, but it sounds like he'll be back on a Trek bike again. The rumors are that uh, he's going to head to Trek Segafredo, I think, is their co-sponsor. If the current rumors are accurate, we'll see a Contador back in action on a Trek bicycle. Patrick, even it, the, the tour tech has been a little flat, wouldn't you say, here? Um, yeah. Nothing much to get excited about with technology? No. I mean, you know, the the we'll get to it soon enough, but the, the big news in tech is the, the looming release of the new Dura-Ace. So, uh, and... You know, this isn't really giving us a great opportunity to see that stuff. So, yeah, um, Patrick's going to give us a, a complete rundown of what's uh, what's happening with uh, Shimano and their top tier group uh, in a bit here on the pace line. That four new helmets have come out. Uh, some custom paint jobs, specialized Bell Giant Pock all have helmets are showcasing at the tour. There's some customized paint jobs, but boy, I, usually I, I look forward to seeing some cool tech out of the tour, and it just uh, hasn't been hasn't been there quite yet. Our favorite family man, Lawrence Tandam, has been putting his California training to good use at the Tour. He's been riding in support of the French youngster on the giant Alpacine squad, Warren Barguy, Barguy, working on my French here. Uh, but with the youngster losing chunks of time in the Pyrenees, maybe they'll turn Lawrence loose for a stage win. We saw his teammate Dumoulin to uh, take the, the top Pyrenean st stage the other day, so... Uh, who knows, Patrick? Maybe Lawrence can uh, be be out there on a break one day and and put some of that uh, Sonoma Grasshopper training to use. Oh, I just want him to get back here sooner. Yeah, I'd be you okay want Lawrence back? Yeah, yeah, I want him to come back here. <laughs> but you know, ultimately, guys, I, you know, I appreciated your show last week and your takes on what's kind of happened with the tour. Uh, its engagement level, uh, something has changed. I'm kind of with you guys. The tour has become. Kind of a made-for-DVR event. Uh, not only do we fast-forward through the commercial breaks, but I use that same button on my remote to advance through all the senseless pedaling and pee breaks. Hey, straight to the crashes, attacks, and finales, uh, I say with the tour. And, um, you know, it's, it, needs, uh, it needs some oomph. We need, a little, we need a little punch, don't we? We need just a little more competition, it feels like. And that's, well, that's what I gathered out of your life. Maybe we have. You know, no. yeah, I, I, I have to say a lot of this is, is my, my altered outlook on Grand Tours. You know, that said, to, to just echo what you guys were talking about before, um, Froome's attack 
uh, on the descent, you know, that's something that used to be routine, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and certainly earlier on, but I'm more familiar with that time period. Uh, it used to be that, you know, attacking the downhills, actually racing the the descents just the way you would race the climbs was a thing. Uh, Eddie Merckx won a tour based on an attack that happened at the top of a climb and, you know, raced the descent. And uh, these guys have become so fragile that uh, racing the descents isn't something that typically happens. And so I give Froome big points for helping to make the racing more interesting and, you know, uh, restore my uh, my hope that this isn't just strictly a climbing championship. Mm-hmm. It's just ironic. It comes from from Team Sky, which is accused of being methodical and, and plotting their way through these grand tours, that they're the ones that animate and and turn some excitement on in, in that first, you know, going into that first rest day. So we should more of that. that. Yeah, guaranteed that will not be the last time we see an attack like that now that we have seen Froome do that. There are a lot of people who are waking up and going, hey, wait a second. We can make time on descents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's an interesting contrast just between Froome, who is ex- you expect to be calculated, and Quintana, who is the exciting new thing, and somehow their personalities got flipped. And Quintana was this cautious, measured, boring competitor on the climbs, and Froome was you know suddenly this crazy genius on the descents mm-hmm. and it was you know, it was just fun to watch and i am walking back my malaise on the tour i am hoping for more and more like that mm-hmm. well let's get back to summer vacation huh <clears throat> my summer <laughs> vacation right okay on. uh glacier national park was on the hot and itinerary this summer and when i said glacier patrick said road to the sun my friend that is a great climb, and I'm going to get it in a second. I'm going to get into it, that is, in a second. But first, getting there, getting to Glacier. Or should I say getting my bike to Glacier National Park? This is this is a, quite a little story, and hopefully some lessons here, too, for folks. I feel travel. like we should cue the ominous music right uh, now. <laughs> yeah, you might want to. The deep this, is, uh, this story has some twists. I decided to actually ship my, my cross bike to Whitefish as opposed to boarding a plane with it. Uh, we had to switch planes in Salt Lake, so shipping uh, shipping is just cheaper and easier on my back. And on a recommendation, I hired a company called Bike Flights to assist with arrangements. Bike Flights has really good FedEx rates. They have a guarantee program, so cool. I packed the bike, I sent it on its way a week ahead of our flight, told the local bike shop in Whitefish to expect it, uh, checked on the bike's progress four days before departure. It was already in Salt Lake, so everything looked great. Headed to, Headed to Montana. Got into Kalispell the Friday before the 4th, checked with a bike shop, no bike. Never arrived, they said. Called bike flights. Uh, it was 5 o'clock on the West Coast at the, by that time, Friday. And uh, bike flights is about to call it a weekend, three-day weekend, in fact, since Monday was the 4th. Customer service rep tracks the shipping tag, which had become a detached, apparently, from the bike, the bike case, that is. The tag was by all accounts in Salt Lake, but no one knew where the bike was. At this point, I'm pretty much told, and this is Friday, by the way, that nothing can happen until Tuesday at the earliest, when my vacation will be half over, and I'll be off the grid, no cell service, no nothing, no bike. Bike Flight starts explaining their uh, per-day apology money that they pay out and that they checked with a local shop and they have sport bikes I can rent. Yeah, 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 right. I want my bike, damn it. <laughs> Swearing didn't work. Didn't bring my bike uh, to Kalispell. Or Maybe you should have sworn harder. Yeah, may have worked. Don't think so. Uh, what did work was meeting a local, though. <clears throat> he told me to check out uh, a local shop called The Sportsman in Whitefish. He said they had a good selection of uh, bikes. He was right. Uh, there I grabbed a specialized Diverge in my size. Uh, it had 105, hydraulic disc, 32s, awesome. Had this ugly green paint job, but who cares? Uh, at least I, I had a bike. Oh, by the way, my fishing poles missed my second flight. They came a day late. So, And my waders, too, were in my bike case. So I was kind of out of luck. Not a lot to do. 
until I got my rental, which was great. I was able to find something to cover the miss out, the MIA of the cross bike I tried to send to to Montana. And so um, the diverge actually worked out. It worked out for the conditions uh, because in the area where we're staying, it's it's mostly gravel roads. And um, funny thing actually happened when I was riding the, the diverge on this very bumpy, gravelly, tough section, the seat bag that, that the rental guy had packed with a tube and tire levers and he somehow stuffed a pump in there, a multi-tool. Well, that seat bag rattled itself open and the contents of that seat said seat bag uh, were spread out all over a gravel road somewhere in, in western Montana. Oh. I did try to give it a look, but <laughs> no luck. So suddenly I was on a rental bike uh, with no ability to repair a flat on what are very unforgiving roads. Still trying to make do, though. Trying to trying to make the best of all this. Uh, bike, again, I still don't know where my personal bike is. It could be anywhere at this point. Um, I'm on a rental bike. Good bike, but uh, bad things continue to happen. Uh, let me say about the riding a glacier. Uh, since it's a national park, there is no trail riding. We've talked about this on Pace Line vis-a-vis the Sustainable Trails Coalition and how they are trying to open up um, wilderness areas and national uh, areas of land to mountain biking. But as it stands right now, you cannot ride on trails in, in, in the national park. Uh, in the Whitefish area and near Columbia Falls, outside the park boundary, there's all kinds of mountain biking, and that's probably why you see a lot of mountain bike rentals in the area. Uh, in fact, days before we arrived... A mountain biker was actually killed on a trail just outside the park by a bear. He was a forest ranger. And it looks like he came flying around a corner, ran into the bear, and the bear attacked him. Uh, they held a service for him while we were there in the area. Wow. Um, so, uh, but back to the riding inside the park, especially uh, along its western side, there are some great, actually, dirt roads that you are allowed to ride on. The, the dirt roads you can use because cars are allowed on them. So you can ride. You can ride bicycles on them as well. The North Fork Road in particular is a, is a fabulous north-south stretch with offshoots that take you to these, these beautiful lakes. I rode to Bowman and Kintla Lakes. Um, this is, again, at the, the west side of Glacier National Park. So a yeah. cross or adventure bike with 40s is an awesome call. A Diverge with 32s, which I was on, well, it could have used some more tire volume. Uh, a couple of pinch flats seem to, to be proof of that. Uh, I did get to the going to the sun road, though. And this is where kind of the diverge paid off, too. I mean, I was happy to be on that. My bike, the bike that I was trying to send to myself uh, was going to have uh, 40s on it, knobs. Um, so it would have been a tougher toe up the, the going to the sun road. Um, for some reason, why I don't know why. I kept calling this the road to the sun. <laughs> the going to the sun road. It's okay. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, like I said in the open, the open of this show, a really great climb and something uh, mortals can actually take down if they allow enough time. It was built with the Model T in mind, and that's why it rarely kicks over 6%. The engineers wanted drivers to be able to make it over Logan Pass in one gear. Um, I started the climb in Apgar on the lower side of McDonald Lake. It's about 30 miles to the top. It had rained the day before. So I had a lot of fog. Uh, considering the steady grade and good road quality, I'm actually surprised I did not see more riders, though, um, going up the road to the sun. But uh, did run into these uh, two studs uh, at the top of Logan Pass. I heard a couple of fellows who, who made the ascent on the road to the sun. What's your name? I'm Rudy Kesar. Rudy and? Rob Helveston. Rob, where are you guys from? Boulder, Colorado. Well, then this is no problem then, <laughs> it huh? Is, it is. We, uh, we got some comments on the way up. <laughs> yeah, you guys are out here toying around with the Continental Divide. <laughs> Everyone we pass is like, oh, brother. <laughs> uh, Boulder, right. So how did you find this climb? What did, what did you think about it? If you were to advise or talk about it to somebody else, what would you tell them about this climb? Yeah, I think that coming from Colorado, we climb a lot of high mountains. And I think what's unique about this, it's similar long steady climb but it's almost like what do you say riding in middle earth yeah there's uh it's very lush and beautiful uh and i i mean it's just a totally different environment here it's nice yeah um 
It's also just much lower elevation. I mean, yeah. you started at three and you come up to six and a half, whereas yeah. in Boulder, we start at five and a half and go up to 10, 10. or so. It never really puts you under stress, does it? It's it's um, one of those type of climbs that's attainable for a lot of people, would you yeah, say? Yeah, and, and I think also I'm from the East Coast where I think roads were built kind of just straight up mountains. And I feel like out here in Colorado and this climb as well, it's very steady the whole way. It's enjoyable to ride. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it Was it a bucket list climb for you or kind of one of those things? Kind of. I'd say more for Rudy. He heard of it a couple of years ago, and I'm more along for the ride, but it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've wanted to come out here a long time. Yeah. It's worth it. So now you guys are going to go down to... St. Mary's. Yep. St. Mary's, maybe head a little bit farther south, see how we feel, <laughs> turn around at some point. <laughs> and come back up? Come back up, yep. Come back up and over. Okay. Yeah. I hear that, that that direction from St. Mary's back up is the harder direction. Oh, yeah? Oh. Oh well, yeah. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> well, I'm going down, so and I'm going to get cold. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, you well, guys uh, enjoy your ride. Thank you. Thanks you for stopping by. Yeah. I think I may have overstated, by the way, the, the degree of difficulty in the show open. I, I talked to compared uh, the going to the Sun Road, kind of like the Quad Affair, or or maybe even Alpe d'Huez, only in length, only in the time it will take you. Those climbs are harder than going to the Sun. Going to the Sun is a is a steady six percent it, it it kicks up to eight in spots but never really puts you under under severe stress and you know i think a lot of people can knock this thing out provided they fit into this this time window the strange time window you see the going to the sun road has bike restrictions on it there are no bikes allowed on the road between 11 and four and they don't just mean the twisty tight sections near the top. They mean the whole road. So when I descended, I stopped at McDonald Lodge where Mrs. Hottie and I agreed to meet. I get to the lodge in plenty of time. Right around the lodge, there's lots of tourists there, but no misses. There's no cell service either. I kept circulating. I hacked into their Wi-Fi, tried to send her an email. I'm looking for her, you know, nothing. So I decided to ride to our drop-off point back uh, on the road, on the going to the sun road, uh, which would take, put me back on this restricted road. Uh, I'm almost to the end of the going to the sun road when a ranger comes the other way. He puts on his lights and invites me to meet him at the next turnout. And when we arrive, we discuss the obvious, that I'm on the road after 11 a.m., that I'd been looking for my wife, that my vacation had been a mess so far. He takes my license, jumps in his ranger vehicle, and something happened or overcame him because he emerged without his ticket book. He said I could get on a shuttle or wait until 4 p.m. and ride the rest of the way. I said, I'll take the shuttle. <laughs> Turns out the ranger uh, had been at the service for that mountain biker I told you about who had been killed by the bear. And I think he just felt maybe in some sort of sympathy in that moment for all bike riders. So in an odd way... Uh, and I'm just speculating here. A man's death may have had something to do with me getting off out of a $130 ticket. It's a really bizarre set of circumstances. Brad Treat, by the way, was the man's name who was, who was killed by the bear. And we sent out our sincere condolences to his family for what happened. But the whole thing was uh, really strange. Bottom line is that I took the shuttle down to Apgar. And the ranger said that some cyclists will actually wait until four to ride off the road because they want to complete the segment. Uh, they're either on cross-country rides or what have you, and they'll just stand there on the side of the road in a turnout and, and wait to, to complete the, the going to the sun road um, so they don't miss out on their contiguous journeys or their Strava or whatever they happen to be doing. But it's a great ride, the going to the sun road ride, uh, Patrick. Beautiful suggestion. Weather wasn't perfect, um, but we may do by going back up. We took the shuttle back up, my wife and I did, for a hike around the area. Um, to check it out. And the sun did break through and the beauty is just amazing. Um, it is hard to, to even put words to it. it. It does need pictures. It does need your eyeballs on it to really, to really take it all in. Um, the glacier is actually glaciers. Um, there's several of them up there. Um, they are getting smaller um, by all accounts. Um, there are, there is trouble up there uh, with melt. Um, they did have a they did have one of the hikes closed due to bear activity, so the wildlife is still quite active up there. 
Uh, back to my bike. A uh, bike flight's finally got back to me uh, late in the week. Said FedEx was sending it back to L.A. And that actually presented another problem since the, the return was supposed to be to a bike shop in Santa Monica. Come to find out that FedEx used my, my luggage tag as a return address, which would, of course, be my home. They dropped off the bike on my front doorstep when no one was home. I have some really alert neighbors, though, who grabbed it and stored it for me. We eventually got word from them that it was in safe hands. And by the way, FedEx, you were smart enough to read my address on the luggage tag. How did you not see my cell phone number printed in bold there, too? A call would have solved quite a bit here. So, that's what I did for my summer vacation. How about you guys? I I think I need a map or something. I th- there's there's a lot of dots here that I still haven't connected. But man, to me it sounds like you took uh, a lot of confusion and a lot of problems and still made a fantastic vacation and a fantastic ride out of it. So yeah, I, I would just say you know kudos to you for not letting it uh, get you into you know freak out, despondent. This is you know this is a, a rotten vacation and I give up. Yeah, I was on the verge. You know. But you held it together, man. You held it together. I did catch a fish. That helped. Uh, <laughs> but I, I tell I tell them, folks, uh, the going to the Sun Road, again, I've, I've already said this a couple times. It's a busy road, um, especially uh, during the 4th or around a national holiday. It's going to be busy, but a beautiful road. And people do not go fast. They give you, they give you space on the road, and the pavement is quite good. Um, if you have problems with heights, there are some ledges. Hmm. Um, and it can be, you know, it might freak a few people out. I think even in a car, some people might get a little concerned, but a a, a fabulous climb and a very unique spot up there too, to check out. Encourage everyone to go. Going to the Sun Road, Logan Pass. All right. Coming up, Patrick takes us on a test ride of some new Shimano product. Oh, it's not really a ride. It's a look. We're going to take a look at the new Durace. And we do make one last trip to the top of Logan Pass, next on the pace line. I don't know, maybe I spent a little bit too much. Let's, let's see, I guess tomorrow's going to be a really hard day. Um, so 20 seconds, more or less, that's, it's, it's not a huge margin. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll take every second I can get at this point. Baseline, fatty of fatcyclist.com, Patrick Brady, redkiteprayer.com, Michael Houghton here, your host. Uh, the new Durace has uh, finally been revealed, although uh, we've yet to spy it on a bike in the tour, at least as far as we can tell. Shimano has released details of their top tier group, Uh Patrick, you've had a look and are hopefully in line to get a ride. What are the highlights? Uh, well, the first biggest thing to say is that this is still a 2 by 11 uh, group. Uh, traditionally, the introduction of a new Dura's, Dura Ace group uh, has meant adding another cog in the rear. You know, so uh, back in the early 1990s, when uh, you know eight speed came out, that was a jump from seven speed, and that was the first STI. This is still an eleven speed group, um, and uh, but it also does still feature two chain rings. Uh, so they haven't gone one by on us with this. <clears throat> Pardon. Um, what's really kind of curious are all the different options in terms of brakes. So you, they still do rim calipers. You can get those. Um, there are um, there are also uh, uh, post mount brakes. Uh, sorry, um, direct mount. The, direct mount. Thank you. Uh, that was escaping me for a second there. So yeah, they've got uh, two, uh, three direct mount brakes. There's a, a rear up on the seat stays direct mount. There's one under the bottom bracket, and then, of course, the fork uh, direct mount brake. And then there are disc brakes. Um, and then with the levers themselves, there are four different versions. So there's the mechanical lever with rim calipers uh, or, or the direct mount, then mechanical with hydraulic disc, and then DI2 with rim calipers and DI2 with hydraulic discs. 
So four different levers. Um, and that covers, you know, a lot of the big news. Now, the shape uh, of the levers um, it has been refined. It's not as big uh, a lever. It's not as bulbous uh, at the Jesus bump. Um, and uh, so it, it looks a little bit more like a, a traditional uh, integrated control lever. Um, and then... Let's see, uh, watt age. There's now uh, an integrated watt meter uh, in the crank. Uh, so that's an opportunity that hasn't been there before. Um, they say that uh, these, uh, these new discs uh, will be able to handle heat even better than the previous ones. And that's, I didn't ever have a problem with, the, uh, with heat. So Yeah, I think this uh, is the first, impressive. these are the first Durace, Durace hydraulic brakes with the Durace label on it. Yes, they've been non-series up to now so that you could use them with either Ultegra or Durace. And this is now truly a Durace hydraulic disc brake. Um, yeah, um, there have been some revisions in the cassette offerings. They no longer offer a cassette that ends in a 21 or a 23. Um, commence ground shaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm. It's It's kind of just, it's really pretty amazing to me. I mean... The, the, you know, 11 or 12, 21 cassette has been such a mainstay of Durace for so long. And certainly the 23. I mean, how many years I worked in shops where uh, a 12, 23 cassette was just what came specced on bikes, but they don't even make that anymore. There's an 1125, there's a 1225, an 1128, a 1228, which is pretty delicious looking plus a new 1130. Um, So far, 30 is the biggest they're offering, though, for the Durace. Um, The mechanical uh, shifters are uh, are supposed to be, uh, have an even lighter shift action. Um, It's said to require 24% less force uh, for a downshift uh, on the right lever. Um, And then... uh, the lever throw for upshifting has decreased by 14%. So it's a shorter stroke uh, there. Um, they're only offering rotors in two diameters, 140 and 160. Um, let's see. Um, and the, the group doesn't lose much weight, but it lose a little, loses a little bit here and there. Um, and the let me say that the... Uh, the flat mount disc brake, the appearance of it, it's just really tiny, uh, very clean looking. Um, you know, some of the early uh, uh, disc equipped road bikes were sort of clunky looking, but this flat mount disc with a, a 140 rotor is going to be a, a really clean looking bike. Yeah. Um, so uh, something for everybody. I have... I have a suspicion that this may be the last time we ever see a rim caliper from Shimano's Durace group. Now, when Shimano does this, they usually also release um, uh, wheels, Durace wheels, do they not? Pedals uh, and hubs. Is is that stuff part of what's been released so far? Um, you know, I don't recall seeing anything on pedals. It may have been there. Uh, yeah, there were there was a revamping of uh, of wheels. You know, by and large, I think all of the models were the same. I haven't spent as much time studying up on that. Um, I know that when we get to the introduction, you know, and actually uh, have a chance to ride it, we'll we'll see all that stuff in person. But yeah, I mean, there's a full line of wheels along with this as well. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I know a lot of people listening. Uh, will appreciate is that they continue to offer um, some deep section wheels uh, with aluminum brake tracks. Mm. So uh, that's that's something that has continued to be really popular uh, with people who are still, you know, maybe somewhat understandably nervous about going to a full carbon fiber clincher. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we look forward to hearing more about Shimano's top tier uh, group set Durace, uh, and hope that some of the stuff trickles down to Ultegra and 105. I rode 105, Patrick, in Montana. I, I couldn't believe how good that stuff was. I mean, and that's that's the hopes with, you know, when, when a company like this launches a major revision to their best product line, that it works its way down. And 
Uh, but 105 stuff, I, I thought was great, in fact. And I beat the living you-know-what out of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is really good stuff. You know, my, my early days working in shops, I remember working on 105 bikes and being impressed at, you know, how inexpensive that stuff and how easy to adjust and, you know, how great the operation was of it. And it has continued to always be that. Uh, a group that just doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. Awesome. Shimano's new Durace uh, coming out, uh, I think, a little later this year. So we'll look for more on that. All right. Uh, that just about wraps up this edition of the Pace Line. A couple of um, housekeeping notes. First, we want to check in with Fatty at fatcyclist.com and see what's coming up on the Fatty cast and your home website. I think I saw more Rockwell Relay posts going up. Oh, yeah. Um you know, I like taking my time with telling this story, and I've got some good stories to tell. So it's uh, anyone who comes to my blog for the next month or so. No, let's go ahead and say into September is going to be reading race report after race report. Uh, it's going to be Rockwell Relay, then Crusher and the Tusher. And by the time I finish Tusher, uh, the Tusher, uh, it's going to be into Leadville. Um, as far as the fatty cast goes, I just put up a really good, thoughtful interview with Ken Clober, the founder of the Leadville Trail 100. And um, I'm next going to be putting up a really good interview with Scott Nickel, the founder of Ibis, and with Yuri Hauswald, uh, who had a very interesting, albeit unsuccessful, Dirty Kanza. So lots going up in the next little while, lots of it having to do with some people that you've heard, heard of before. Mm-hmm. Patrick, in addition to uh, your regular product review, somebody has coaxed you into writing something about test riding bikes. Uh, for for RKP, what's what gives there? Ah, uh, boy, I, I, it came out of a couple of different conversations and certainly some things that I saw in comments to RKP. And I I I'm not even sure what occurred to me to actually uh, say, oh, I should actually write a whole piece about this. Um, so I'm not even sure, yeah, <laughs> entirely how it happened, but it occurred to me, oh, you know, yeah, I don't write how tos, but now I'm going to write a how to. So there's that. Useful stuff, as always, on redkiteprayer.com. Hey, folks, we need your help for an upcoming show. We've done this once before. Um, it is uh, so, um, something where, where we've asked listeners to, to help us um, establish a little baseline on what we're going to talk about, uh, asking for listener input. Here's the topic, and it's a touchy one, but a timely one, politics. Hmm. In addition to the race around France, we have a little race for a house on Pennsylvania Avenue going on. So here's our question. Do you talk about politics on the bike during rides with your friends? Or is the group ride a safe zone? We could care less if you are for Trump or Clinton or whoever. What we want to know is if talking about candidates or issues is okay with you when you are rolling on a ride. Your input gladly accepted on our respected Facebook pages, Red Kite Prayer and Fat Cyclist. We will be uh, posting something there too. As a reminder to stay tuned for that in a future show. Again, let us know if you think talking about politics on the bike is okay, or if you you avoid that altogether. You ride away from somebody who starts talking about issues and candidates uh, during this political season. Uh, you can find the pace line on the pages of Red Kite Prayer, and that's also the place you can rip us a new one if you'd like, or not, <laughs> or say something nice. The pace line also shows up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music. Uh, please subscribe and rate us so we don't fall off the back of the podcast Peloton. All right, folks, we're going to close out our show the way we started it. So we'll talk to you soon on the Pace Line. All right, Pace Liners, I thought uh, since we opened the show from the Continental Divide and the top of Logan Pass here, I thought we'd close it this way too. And with a few notes about coming up here if you do make this trip. One good idea is to go ahead and climb up here and climb to the top of Logan Pass. Now, they run you off the road between the hours of 11 and 4 during the summer busy hours. The rangers will come by and they'll, they'll pull you off the road. In fact, I got pulled off the road this morning because I was a little late getting down the hill. One thing you can do is you could ride up here to the top of Logan and get off your bike, maybe pack a pair of light hikers with you and get a little hike in. Wear some baggy shorts, get a hike in. Uh, check out the visitor center, learn something about climate change and glaciers and so forth. And then at four o'clock, get back on your bike and, and make the descent down. Um, there, is a, there is a sturdier route. You can ride 
from one side to the other of, of the park, right over uh, Road to the Sun. It's about 100 miles round trip, and you're probably looking at uh, seven, 8,000 feet of climbing. I'm guessing you're, I don't know, the stats in front of me. Anyhow, lots to do. This is a great way to, to spend your day. I made two trips up to Logan Pass today, and it was well worth it. So for Fatty and Patrick, again, Michael Houghton from Logan Pass, the Continental Divide in Glacier National Park. We'll talk to you next time on The Pace Line.